0: Okay, we're going to start off with some breathing exercises. (laughs) Deep breaths. What does the Bible say about the role of women in church? Uh, Truth be told, more than once once this week I thought to myself, maybe it's best um, that we just do some nice story from the Gospels about how Jesus comes along and heals somebody and then everybody goes home happy. When we outsourced the questions for uh, this series, which we did late spring, um, there were lots of responses, almost 150 different responses about questions. Uh, this, this one rose to be one of the top two or three uh, most requested topics. And, and even though just a second ago, I sort of informally kidding, kitted around a little bit about breathing exercises. Listen, y'all, don't mistake that for being dismissive. This stuff we're talking about today matters. I want you to read what one person wrote uh, in their uh, request for us to talk about this topic. This person wrote this. I feel that the Bible is very sexist against women by putting them down. I want to know what the Bible says about this. Look at this. Because this has embittered me against the church. Let's just say it out front, friends. Indeed, some in the church have misused scripture as a means of, as this person says, putting down women. This person's feelings of embitterment are understandable. And here's why. Because when people who claim to be submitted to God's purposes, people who claim to be submitted to his purposes, when they wield power in ways that hurt and abuse others around them, that pain is especially hard to bear, friends. So at the outset, please hear this clearly, Uh, and let's just get the importance of today's question out on the table early. Any and all such abuse in any form in the church is the direct opposite of the godly leadership that is outlined in the scriptures. So on the contrary, (laughs) and let me just play my cards early this morning, Uh, I believe male leadership and authority in the church is something that is restricted to men and is meant to reflect the sacrificial love of Christ in a way that provides and protects an environment that encourages and empowers women to grow into the fullness of who God created them to be. I know that's a mouthful, so I'm going to say it again (laughs) for the note takers. I believe that male leadership and authority in the church is something that's restricted to men because it's meant to reflect the sacrificial love of Christ in a way that provides for and protects an environment that encourages and empowers women to grow into the fullness of who God created them to be. You see, I think in Scripture, when the complementary roles of men and women work as God intended, everybody flourishes. Men, women, children, families, churches. So the case I'm making today is one that's called the complementarian view. There are basically two sides to this. There's a continuum of views here, of course, but, uh, but I'm going to be making a case today um, for the complementarian view. The other side's called the egalitarian view, and uh, let's start by talking uh, primarily about the very many points of agreement between these two views. Both complementarians and egalitarians agree that men and women are created in the image of God and are equally valuable in personal importance and worth. It is God himself in the beginning of Genesis who who gives value and worth to man and woman saying both are created in the image of God And, and we should do nothing but hold up that standard of equal value and position and importance And worth regardless of any sort of roles the second thing that's an area of agreement for them is that both complementarians and egalitarians they agree that men and women must treat one another with kindness compassion that befits that accords with the kind of worth and dignity of being made in god's image and and all forms of disrespect or dishonor whatever forms they take all of those must obviously be denounced as sin, regardless of the role taken. Third thing that's a a major point of agreement is that both complementarians and egalitarians agree that men, men and women should be actively involved in using all of their gifts in ministry. So where they disagree is merely on the issue of the functional roles of men and women. Don't forget this. The area of disagreement is on the issue of the functional roles of men and women, meaning how are the God-given differences meant to play out in practice. So today we're confining our question to how these functional differences play out in the local church by asking the question this way, can women serve the church as pastors or elders? Can women serve the church as pastors or elders? Since we don't have time today to cover all of the surrounding issues and questions, and there are lots of them, Since we don't have time to to cover all the surrounding issues and questions about the essential nature uh, and the function of manhood and womanhood and how those are meant to play out and work in the home and family, we're restricting our efforts today to the question of can women serve the church as pastors and elders. And one last quick thing to mention before we jump into uh, some some passages. This is, we're going to show you now, our Essentials, Convictions, and Opinions chart. We use this in a couple places here at First Christian. We use this in Next Steps. Uh, We use it each week in our Great Questions Ministry on Monday nights. Uh, This chart helps us gain some perspective on the relative weight and importance that certain questions should or shouldn't hold. And while this, this question's not as easy to place as it might seem at first, I do think that this is mostly a matter of conviction. This isn't an essential thing, because sincere Christians who believe in a high view of Scripture and who hold to the core orthodox tenets of Christian faith, they believe both directions, complementary and egalitarian. So I think ultimately it is a matter of conviction. So let's jump in and cover a few passages today that help us answer our question. The first is 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Would you turn with me to that, if you would, please, if you're not there yet. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Paul addresses this question of whether women can serve as pastors or elders most directly in the Scriptures here in 1 Timothy 2. And it says this, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Meaning, and I'm consolidating a lot of context here when I say what I'm about to say. Meaning that, yes... Absolutely, indeed, duh, women should very clearly, very clearly have equal rights in learning, which, given the cultural and religious context of that day, is much more radical a thought then than it sounds like today. That's a given for us today. But here's the thing that Paul was emphasizing here in this verse 11. This learning should not disrupt The worship of the body. Apparently there were some women in the church at at Ephesus. Um, That's the church that this is written to, the Ephesian church. There were some women in the uh, Ephesian church who were disrupting the church meetings. So Paul says here to learn, and he uses the word submissively, which means merely with voluntary restraint. to learn in a way that voluntarily restrains oneself, given that the disruption in worship was the issue there. Look at verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That's the central summary passage. We'll come back to that and talk about that uh, quite a bit here in just a couple minutes. Uh, But let's keep going. It says, rather, she is to remain quiet. In other words, listen to the teaching of the word in worship with the kind of voluntary restraint that doesn't restrict and disrupt things and that respects the order that's needed for all to learn together. And notice here, notice that Paul roots his statement, the summary statement in verse 12, as we'll see here in just a second. He roots why he says that in the created order and what happened in the fall in Genesis 3. Keep reading. Look at verse 13. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, which is a statement not at all about worth or value. It has nothing to do with that. It's simply about the literal order of God forming Adam and then Eve. He's saying the created order is still in effect. The created order is still my intent for godly relationship between Adam and Eve. So he says, Adam was firm, formed first, and then Eve. And then he says this, verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, uh, became a sinner. Now, the argument here that Paul is making in verses 13 and 14, the argument he's making to ground and to verify his statement in verse 12, it's a way of saying among other things. It's a way of saying that male leadership is a thing that precedes the fall and is part of God's created order. In fact, part of what he's saying is the reason that Eve was deceived was because in Genesis 3, the created order was upended. It was reversed. And what happened was that Adam, who was responsible for teaching Eve God's truth, teaching Eve God's word, and creating an environment that upheld his truth so that she could become who God created her to be, he stood there, silent while Eve was deceived theologians talk about the silence of Adam so he's rooting this in how God's intent for the created order was upended and reversed so now let's focus just on verse 12 and keep in mind as we already alluded to a little bit here keep in mind that Paul is speaking about the assembled church body especially in worship we know that because of the wider context that's immediately preceding in verses eight and 9 If you going gonna look that up later. So Paul says this in verse 12. He says, in corporate church settings, especially in corporate church worship settings, he says, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now notice here that Paul explicitly delineates two functions, and by functions we just mean the way he works, functions, his role. Paul explicitly delineates two functions that are reserved for men when it comes to the gathered body of believers. Because again, that's the context. Teaching and exercising authority. And and by teaching, we don't mean all forms of teaching in every context. We mean especially here the role of the preacher or the pastor or the minister who provides the authoritative teaching and exposition of the word of God in corporate settings. And by exercising authority... We mean the role of the elder, especially here, the role of the elder who provides oversight and authority over the local church body. So I think that Paul is saying rooted in how God designed this before creation is this idea that, that Adam, <laughs> that the man has this, this charge of, of, of proclaiming the word of God in authoritative settings and an elder provides oversight and authority over the local church body. Now, Let's address at least just a few uh, objections. We're going to just address some of the main objections that have been brought against this uh, complementarian position uh, that I'm making a case for today. First is this. Some claim this passage uh, here in First uh, Timothy 2:11 through 14. Some claim this passage only applies to one specific cultural situation that Paul was addressing where he, where he was addressing women teaching heretical doctrine within the church. And so the thought is that we should not apply what he says to that specific situation to other churches or to our context today. I don't think that's persuasive, and I'll give you three quick reasons why. Number one, we have absolutely no evidence whatsoever in 1 Timothy or anywhere else in Scripture or even in the wider ancient Near Eastern history and archaeology, we have no evidence that women were actually teaching false doctrine. In fact, it would have been very much an exception in that very patriarchal world for that to have been the case. Second reason why I don't think it's persuasive um, that that context is just that context and doesn't apply to us today is because in verse 12, Paul does not specifically tell women teaching false doctrine to learn quietly. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise over a man. In other words, in the places where Paul addresses heretical teaching, he names those, he talks about them, he has a way to speak specifically about who they are. Third reason why I don't think um, the idea that Paul was just addressing heretical teaching from women in the Ephesian church is this. The reason that Paul gives for not permitting women to teach or to exercise authority is not false doctrine, but it's God's intent for Adam and Eve and the reversal of roles that actually led to the fall. Now, some claim that Paul says this in verse 12 uh, because women were not well-educated in the first century, and so the problem was merely that they weren't qualified to teach or to govern in church. But again, just like the false doctrine Uh, objection not only does paul nowhere specify lack of education as the reason but the wider scriptural context and evidence from history and archaeology they increasingly show that there were actually many well-educated women in the ancient world far more educated than we used to think and in fact not only that not only that but paul names one in this book and in other places that was a part of the ephesian church who was educated And not only that, but nowhere does formal training or education show up in the New Testament as a requirement for church leadership. And again, Paul explicitly roots his statement in verse 12 in the created order, and he doesn't even seem to somehow imply that lack of education was the problem that he was addressing, just as he nowhere even remotely seems to imply that heretical false teaching by women was the problem. As one scholar said about this objection, it is precarious to base an argument on a reason Paul didn't give instead of the reason he does give. So the reason, the reason Paul wrote verse 12 was in response to disruptions in worship that were examples of less than quiet submission and he rooted that verse's authority in God's created order. In other words, in other words, verse 12 is wrapped with the context of verse 11 and the authority of verses 13 and 14. So, enough about 1 Timothy 2. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, the second passage here is actually a set of these two passages, and these are the two passages that we have in Scripture, the only two passages that give us the qualifications for being an elder. And we don't have time to look those up and unpack them uh, as I'd love for us to, uh, but if you'd like to do so later, the specific passages are 1 Timothy 3 1 through 7 and Titus 1 5 through 9. These are the only passages we have that give qualifications for the office of of elder. And yes, by the way, I believe the New Testament intends for us to see eldership as an office and not as a spiritual gift, as some have said. So here's the key point. Both of these passages, both of these passages assume that elders are going to be men when they say a couple things. Number one, they say that an elder must be the husband of one wife, which is just basically a way of saying he's a one-woman man, okay? An elder must be the husband of one wife. Not only that, but both of these passages, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, they both refer to managing his children and or his household well, using the masculine form. Now, some object, like earlier, that these were directions given only for a specific cultural situation at the time of writing where women were not well-educated. But again, the same kinds of things could be said about 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that were said earlier when we talked about the passage in 1 Timothy 2. So in summary, I think, uh, and there are a lot of the passages we could talk about, um, I think that the best and the most biblical answer to this question of whether women can serve as pastors or elders, in my estimation, is no. So, how does, how does all this equal worth and value but different roles thing work? Because we've, we've, we've narrowed what we've talked about within the church so far. How does this work outside of the church? While we don't remotely have time to do justice to this question, um, I do think it's important that we talk through some of the principles about the functional differences between what we're going to be calling female submission and male headship. Now, we're only focusing on those specific ways of talking, not because uh, we can't apply the idea of submission uh, to men as well. Um, we can, but uh, we're going to be talking about it in those terms because um, it's a decent way of talking about how Scripture as a whole um, talks about it in a complementarian view. And by the way, I'm basically stealing-slash-adapting from a great little book about complementarianism by a scholar and pastor whose name is Samuel Storms. Sam Storms uh, wrote this great little book that is called, uh, conveniently enough, Complementarianism. If you want a great little introduction to all of the issues involved scripturally, um, it's a really good place to start. There are lots of other um, places you can find great, Uh, Summaries of of the egalitarian position as well. Uh, We can talk about those later on if you'd like to. So again, I'm sorry we don't have time to unpack all these hardly at all, but I just want to quickly share uh, quite a bit uh, of these these helpful principles for you, uh, mainly by just listing and making some comment on them because I think these are biblically faithful and these are helpful for guiding our thoughts about these important questions about the different roles that men and women uh, are meant to play. Also keep in mind that we are now going away again from the question of the authority in church world to uh, the interaction between men and women, specifically uh, mostly in marriage. So we're going to cover super briefly misconceptions about and the essence of both female submission and male headship. So let's cover six misconceptions about female submission. And by the way, I know this uh, word submission may grate on us. Uh, a little bit, Um, but but it merely means a voluntary, like you choose a yieldedness, a voluntary yieldedness to a recognized authority. We all have to submit uh, to authorities in various ways in our lives. In fact, everybody at all times is submitting to some sort of authority everywhere they are. So I suspect, by the way, that just by Uh, some of y'all hearing me say the word submission, it may feel like it grates on you, but please hear me out. A godly vision for for man and woman is actually best for all, and we're going to end today where I think the primary responsibility of leadership lies, with men who are called by God to lead in a manner that is Christ-like and loving and sacrificial, and that is not in the ways that mirror the world's manipulation of power, but in ways that wield power in a godly, Christ-like manner to provide for and to protect an environment. Where all under the care of male leadership become who they're created and meant to be. So let's roll. And again, these are six misconceptions about female submission. The first is this submission is not grounded in any supposed superiority of the husband or supposed inferiority. Of the wife. You can look up a couple of those passages that we've shown you on screen there later. Listen to what Sam Storms says about this. He says the concept of the wife being, as it says in Genesis, the helper, the concept of the the wife being the helper of the husband in no way implies inferiority. In fact, the word helper is often used in the Old Testament to refer to God as the helper of humanity. Surely He is not inferior to us. Rather, The passage there in Genesis, Genesis 2, 18 to 22, if you want to look up later, that passage there means, number one, that the husband, even before the fall into sin, was incomplete without his wife. And that secondly, the husband will never reach his full potential apart from the input of his wife. Can we get a witness, ladies? Second thing is this. Submission does not mean a wife is obligated to follow should her husband lead her into sin. I know this is kind of like a, well, duh, of course not. But it's worth saying out loud. Submission is an obedience to God way, God's ways first, and a husband's ways only second, and only insofar as they accord with God's ways. Thirdly, submission does not mean the wife must sacrifice her freedom. In fact, a, a, a godly and biblical definition of freedom is becoming who God created you to be, not who the world tells you you could be. Fourth, Submission does not entail passivity. Proverbs 31 is a great passage to look at for this. Just, just look at the woman in Proverbs 31 uh, and, and my wife. Uh, they are anything, anything but passive. Really, read that passage later on. They take initiative, they're creative, they're tireless in their work. Everyone around them calls themselves blessed because of their relationship with her. Storm says it like this. Sam Storm says, there is no biblically prescribed personality for wives any more than there is one for husbands. Fifthly, uh, submission does not entail um, a, a, a literal silence. Proverbs 31, 26 And Acts 18, 26 are good places to look at later. Uh, Many mistakenly think a wife wife is not being submissive if she ever criticizes or makes requests or teaches her husband. Uh, Listen, a bunch of men need some loving criticism, some reminder of their need to pick up the slack, and they could use some good learning To make the point, what husband would say, I haven't learned as much from my wife as I have from blank. Most husbands have learned far more from their wives than anyone else on the planet. Most husbands could use a little more such learning. Number six, submission does not mean that everything a wife does must be directly dependent upon or connected to her husband. Look at Proverbs 31 again. The wise woman in Proverbs 31, she is involved in things outside the home, outside of her relationship with her husband. They are things that are for the benefit of her, for the benefit of others. Submission should not make the husband some sort of uh, functional idol that makes him the center of her or anybody else's universe. That's just weird, and it's ungodly. And so here are three principles that help us understand um, the essence of female submission. Number one is this, the submission. Submission is the disposition to honor and affirm a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. Pastor John Piper, he puts it this way. He said, submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and you lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. But the attitude of Christian submission also says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and you want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead, but I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ alone is my king. Second principle that gets at the essence of female submission for us today is that submission is fundamentally an attitude and an act of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians five twenty two is a great verse that's helpful here. Just says, "Wives, submit to your husbands; uh, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, as a reflection of your submission to Christ as Lord." And then, thirdly, submission is a commitment to support one's husband in such a way that he may reach his full potential as a man of God. Look at the woman in Proverbs thirty one again. This may include several things, of course. Uh, making the home a safe place that's free from the sinful sinful influences of the world, striving to be dependable and trustworthy, providing affirmation and encouragement, showing confidence in his decisions, building loyalty to him in the children. So now let's look at five misconceptions about male headship. And when we say headship, we mean the positive exercise of of authority, the helpful and positive exercise of authority for the sake of those under one's care. Now we're going to start to fly. Number one, husbands are never commanded to rule their wives but to love them. The principle of male headship is not about unilateral control, um, but it's fundamentally about a self-sacrificing love of Jesus that leads by providing and protecting an environment that helps those under one's care flourish as God intends. Number two, headship is never portrayed in Scripture as a means for self-satisfaction or self-exaltation. Headship is always others-oriented. And perverting headship or authority into a means of selfish power is sinful and it's abusive. Thirdly, headship is not the power of a superior over an inferior. Having the role of male leadership is not earned or deserved. (laughs) And it doesn't mean superiority, but the responsibility to sacrifice first. Any man who perceives any woman as lesser in worth or value or dignity is not being truly manly. We must stay clear of any sinful inclination to distort this idea of the submission of the wife or anybody under a man's leadership in, into some sort of superiority complex or, or, or feeling of higher worth or value or importance. If anything, it should remind us at every step to sacrifice and love first. Anything else is not in keeping with Christ-like leadership that said, take me on the cross Fourth, headship is never to be identified with the issuing of commands. God alone is justified in issuing command. Fifth, headship does not mean the husband must make every decision in the home. (laughs) Listen to this. When husbands mistakenly assume that wives taking initiative or making decisions is automatically some sort of undermining of their own authority. They are letting their own insecurity and fears guide them more than godly leadership or the good flourishing of those around them. So finally, here are 10 principles that help us understand the essence of male headship. Number one, headship is a responsibility and it's not a right. It's a sacred trust. It's a sacred trust to steward well on God's behalf. And it's not a right to be demanded. That's true of anybody who holds any authority, not just, not just male headship. Secondly, headship is the positive exercise of authority to serve, it's the power to care, it's the power to serve, it's the power to facilitate and help another person's flourishing. Thirdly, headship is the opportunity to lead like Jesus. Look at those passages later. Uh, but when it came to uh, his own little flock of, of the disciples, the 12 disciples, Jesus led them by setting the example, by teaching them well, by spending time with him, and even by delegating authority to them. Fourthly, headship is scripturally governed. Uh, husbands have not been given the authority to lead their families in ways that are contrary to the Bible. If a wife is ever asked or told by her husband to do something that violates Scripture, (laughs) she is not only free to disobey him, she is obligated to do so. Which means, by the way, y'all, you need to know the word well. You need to know the word well if you're going to exercise authority on behalf of the one who gave it to you to steward well. Number five, headship may entail the responsibility to make a final decision when agreement cannot be reached. May entail the responsibility to make a final agreement when agreement cannot be reached. By the way, sometimes, in fact, I find often this final decision is often to let someone else, my wife, decide. Really? Yeah. Number six, headship entails gentleness and sensitivity. All forms of leading harshly are abusive. Seven, headship does not give men the right to be wrong. Man, if we just remembered that one, that'd be good. Uh, Headship means, number eight, honoring one's wife, 1 Peter 3, 7. Number nine, headship means loving and caring for one's wife as much as we love and care for ourselves, Ephesians 5, 28 through 9. And then finally, number 10, headship means loving and caring for one's wife as much as Christ loves and cares uh, for us. Ephesians 5 25 through 7. Which means it's unconditional, it's unselfish, it's purposeful, it's sacrificial, sacrificial, uh, it's demonstrative and practical. And how it shows its love and care. Listen, the way Jesus related to women in general, is a model for all men. I want to read to you a passage from a British author named Dorothy Sayers. She says this, The women around Jesus had never known a man like this man, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, who never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who never made jokes about them, who never treated them as, Oh, these women, God help us. He was a man who rebuked without incessant complaint. He praised without being condescending. He took their thoughts and their arguments and their questions and their comments seriously. He never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be more feminine. He never jeered at them for being female. He had no axe to grind, and he had no uneasy male dignity to defend he took them as he found them, and he was completely unself-conscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its force from female perversity. On the contrary, friends, Jesus, Jesus calls us whatever level of authority, whatever our role, wherever we are, whatever our giftedness. He calls us to lead and to love sacrificially. And think about this. Jesus led and he loved sacrificially, taking deathly seriously his own responsibility to lead those under his care, to become who God the Father had created them to be. And we are, all of us, as God has positioned and gifted us, we are all called to do the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for wielding the power and giftedness that we have, all of us, in ways that are about us, in ways that pervert what you've given to us. We ask, Lord, that you'd continue to teach us as we give ourselves to your word, as we study the model of your son, Jesus, we pray that you would continue to teach us so that we would create around us an environment and protect that environment so that uh, friends and family, uh, so that all those around us, so that our spouses and our children uh, could become the fullness of who you created them to be, so that your glory would be made known in the world. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.